Friday, January 20th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The stories and headlines were everywhere in 2022. Unionization was on the march. A big win in an Amazon facility on Staten Island. Starbucks, or Starbucks is unionizing. The LA Times in May ran an op-ed, Momentum is growing for unionization. Quote, this is the most exciting and promising moment for the nation's labor movement in decades, thanks to the landmark union victories at Starbucks and Amazon. Here's a clip from the podcast, The Majority Report. We, we could just be in an era where workers are beginning to understand their power. And you're also seeing this stuff is contagious. I mean, it's not like Omicron level contagious or maybe even not even delta but it may be somewhere around uh, wild type uh, wow, level you're, contagious you're learning from howard schultz uh in order to like apply these really bad metaphors really bad metaphors to the union effort <laughs> but the point is is that i think when people see other workers um successfully unionize other workers successfully, I mean, I think there, there's no doubt in my mind that the Kellogg's workers, 1,400 of them who rejected the uh, offer that came down, they saw what happened with the John Deere workers and, and, and so on. And so um, it is, it's an exciting time for labor and, 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 and we will see what happens. And now the official stats, not just the high profile wins have been counted and Union membership in the United States fell last year to a new low. The share of the workforce in a labor union dropped to 10.1%, the lowest on record according to Labor Department statistics. Now, it is true that the total number of union members in the United States grew by 273,000. But since the economy added 5.3 million jobs, the share of workers in unions have never been lower. So what happened? The macro trend, as counted in data, as coded in either your union or not, not your you have momentum or you don't, or this is an exciting thing or it isn't, doesn't really believe in a narrative. It is simply hard to unionize, and the fact is fewer people are in unions as a percent of the overall economy and workforce as has ever been. And while there are stories, and you may wish to view them as inspirational stories if you are pro-union, and while we think in stories, we can overcome the overwhelming background condition, the difficulty of unionization. Also, the perception by a lot of workers often that they don't want to unionize. Plus, there is the fact that the people doing the storytelling, the unionized reporters for places like the New York Times and Washington Post and Wall Street Journal, do give more time, attention, and space and emphasis to successes. Failures are often portrayed as the result of intimidation, never of rational self-interest. Successes are David's besting Goliaths. And listen, there is intimidation. It is hard to get a union vote off the ground. People who try to do so often face a stacked deck. But as I've talked about on the gist before, the failed votes for unions after Amazon's win on Staten Island got a tiny fraction of the coverage of the less frequent successes. They failed in Albany. They failed in Alabama. They failed on another Staten Island facility. You didn't hear so much or even at all about them. This is just a story where almost all of the mainstream media, sorry to go all Sarah Palin on you, but the mass consensus of everyone tasked with covering this story from a non-conservative outlook 
generally looks at it from a pro-union lens. It's just like climate coverage. It's looked through a lens of, you know, less CO2 emissions would be better than more. And so too are workforces seen as new and exciting if they unionize and disappointing if they don't. It's not as if the big outlets didn't cover the overall trend of 10.1%, the lowest membership in years. Well, the LA Times and New York Times didn't, but the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal did. Good news for unions usually coincides with good news for the economy. A tight labor market and low unemployment means workers can demand more. Even so, we are now experiencing record low unemployment, and that is coinciding with, as I'm telling you, record low unionization. On the show today, a segment you did not know you needed and almost certainly don't, who said it? Conservative radio host Charlie Kirk or Jacksonville Jaguar wide receiver Christian Kirk? News you almost certainly can't use, but first... Diane Foley has made it her mission to advocate for U.S. nationals who are wrongfully detained or held hostage. She knows how the system worked and learned when her son, the journalist James Foley, was abducted and later killed. Giving us an inside look at the policies of the U.S. is Diane Foley. Up next... WNBA basketball star Brittany Griner was freed from a Russian prison last month after a 10-month detention. This occasioned relief, celebration, consternation, and accusation that in securing Griner's return, but not captive Paul Whelan, the Biden administration had screwed up or chosen incorrectly or not tried hard enough. There is, of course, nothing easy about the impossible situation that hostages, their families, and presidential administrations find themselves in. Right now, there are almost 60 publicly disclosed hostage and wrongful detention cases, and that statistic comes from the Foley Foundation. Dan Foley is the founder and president of this organization. Her oldest son, James Foley, was murdered by the Islamic State in 2014. It brought her to this activism. Diane, welcome to The Gist. Thank you so much, Mike. So when this happened to your son and your family, I would assume that there could be no expectations. It was uncharted territory for you. Totally. But totally. even so... What surprised you, shocked you, about the official reaction about this otherwise already shocking situation? Well, I was shocked that the return of an American, an innocent American who's kidnapped or unjustly arrested abroad is not a priority. That, in fact, it, it's kind of a nuisance for our government because it interferes with our foreign policy and other things our country's doing in the world. So I was rather shocked that it was no one's job to help bring Jim home. We had no um, hostage enterprise whatsoever. I had no access to the president or the executive branch. So I was just shocked at how low a priority the return of an American was. And how was this communicated to you or not communicated to you? Well, I was 
only invited to the White House um, one time, and that was um, at the kindness of Susan Rice, whom I had met when she was at the United Nations. Um, But even then, um, I was just sent back to the FBI and mid-level people at the state and FBI um, to talk about it. But they were people who whose job did not involve diplomacy or any strategizing to bring Jim home. And so I was really sent in circles, Mike. I felt very patronized. In retrospect, I was patronized. Did it seem to you like they just had no playbook for this? And that's one of the reasons they kept you out of the loop. They had nothing positive to tell you. I think that's very true, Mike. It just was not a priority. It just was not of interest. It was sad to them. A lot of people, I think, had compassion um, and they were willing to listen, pat me on the head. Um, The part that was most upsetting was, though, I really was misled. I was told multiple times that Jim was our country's highest priority. But in reality, in action, that was never the truth. And that's the part I just wish... Um, our government had been more straight about it, that they they couldn't do anything. There was They were powerless. Just be honest. But instead, for the first 18 months of Jim's captivity, I was told that Jim was their highest priority. And I believed it. And then how was it revealed to you that that was a lie? Well, as the other, Jim was held with many of our um, allies. He was held with the French, um, English, uh, Spanish, Italians, um, and Dutch, actually, um, a a Danish citizen, German citizen. But as they were negotiated out, it became more and more, I, I naively was hopeful that our government was doing the same thing for our people. But towards the end of 20 or the middle of 2014, it became obvious that our government was not negotiating with the captors and they were abandoned, really. And I was shocked. They were telling you he's our highest priority, but other governments who are telling their families he's their their citizens or their highest priorities were actually showing that you could negotiate for their release. That if they were the highest priority, why aren't we doing what the Danish and the French are doing? Therefore, it's obviously not our highest priority. Exactly, Mike. And that's when, you know, I just was, after Jim's murder, I was shocked and I was angry. But I was really angry at our country for not having the backs of our citizens and for misleading me. It felt like I had been lied to, to be honest, Mike. Yeah. So how did that go from those feelings, that shock, processing that um, tragedy to the foundation that you started? Well, three weeks after Jim was killed, we had started a nonprofit to advocate for the return of Americans taken hostage or kidnapped abroad and to promote um, journalist safety, preventative safety, if you will. Um, Because Jim would have wanted a silver lining. He would have wanted his death to help others in this situation. I had not had any idea that Americans are kidnapped and detained around the world. I had no idea. And because most people, it's just not um, something the public understands very much. I certainly did not. So we decided we had to do something about it, that America could do better 
we had to have the backs of our citizens, particularly when innocent um, people who are working or traveling for business or whatever pleasure um, do nothing wrong and, in fact, are taken hostage. So you asked for what and got what? We started advocating. Um, we went to the White House. We talked to others, you know, trying to understand how this could happen. And it wasn't just us. Um, it was there were five other Americans who died in that twelve months. It was Peter Kasich, Kayla Mueller. It was Stephen Sotloff, a fellow journalist. It was also a businessman, um, Warren Weinstein, another journalist, Luke Summers. All of them had also been kidnapped and held hostage and died that year between 2014-2015. So there was an outcry. So a lot of it was pressure on the Obama administration um, that, what's this about? We can do better. I mean, and so finally, I really felt he, uh, I think his, uh, I know his administration felt compelled to do a all of government look at hostage taking per se. So they um, entrusted that to the National Counterterrorism um, Center. And by June of 2015, um, they issued a presidential policy directive that started the hostage enterprise, actually an accountable air agency, if you will, to try to help Americans come home. So one of the things they also did was establish formal liaisons for people who would be in your position, right? Liaisons. Um, we have uh, now a special envoy at the State Department and a, a hostage fusion cell at the FBI. Yes. The problem with it was, Mike, and it was great, and it, it was a huge step forward, but it was only focused on hostages. It did not look at wrongful detention. And hostages, our government looks at hostages as people who are taken by criminals or pirates or terrorists, whereas um, wrongful detentions are taken by um, state actors, other governments, other countries targeting and taking our people. And wrongful detentions opens a whole can of worms because it total because when states like Russia, Iran, China, take our people. They want to interfere with our foreign policy, Mike. They want to hold our government hostage. They want to hurt us economically, politically, any way they can. So it makes it a much more complicated negotiation, much more complicated. And formal detentions uh, are on the rise, whereas uh, they're, they're becoming the dominant form of this detention and hostage taking. Totally. 95% of hostage taking, if you will, or kidnapping in the last year have been wrongful detentions by five foreign governments. Well, that would indicate that they're doing that because just in terms of their how they define it, it works. It, to some extent, works for them. Is there um, a flaw in U.S. policy that's allowing this to be successful for them? Well, that is why the Foley Foundation is calling for a comprehensive look at the hostage enterprise because it's outdated, Mike. It was it was done eight long years ago when most people were taken by criminals or terrorists, pirates. Now that's not the case at all. Now it's it's foreign governments seeing this little weakness in our policy to 
grab an American. Great. Now we can hold the, uh, the U.S. government hostage. And so we must take a comprehensive look at this because it has huge implications for our own national security as a country. Um, it directly interferes with our foreign policy and our economy, never mind the lives of Americans who travel internationally for work and such. So that is one at the top of our list. We really feel it needs a... The current hostage... Um, enterprise is at the mid-levels of the State Department and FBI, and they really don't have the clear access to the executive branch where those decisions about trades or concessions are made. So without that um, access, it is it, it is really hard to negotiate any release. Well, I'm all for looking and doing a comprehensive review, and I understand that this has not been undertaken, but is there anything specific that you or the Foley Foundation is advocating for, for policies that that review could endorse? Absolutely. Um, One of the big things is, as I said before, is anyone dealing with hostage taking or or the wrongful detention of our citizens needs to have clearer access to the executive branch. So they really need to be there as opposed to um, somewhere buried in our bureaucracy because they need to have that um, ability to talk to the national security advisor and the president if needed to make decisions. Um, Secondly, the Levinson Act, which was um, named after Robert Levinson, held so very long um, in Iran, um, lacks funding. Um, can you imagine, Mike, um, when a captive come, is brought home, we, our government doesn't have funding to pay for that flight. In many cases, the person returning home is billed for the flight to come home. Um, we also have other Americans in some prisons in Venezuela where they get no food and water unless the family is able to pay for such things. So there's many holes in the funding there. There's no funds for um, these families who, who might live in California, Arizona to come to D.C. to advocate for the return of their loved ones. So the Levinson Act does not have funding um, that it needs. It also mentions the. It tells consular that they must decide who is a wrongful detention. Out of the thousands of Americans who may be arrested abroad, they've got to sift through and decide who is a wrongful detention. Well, the problem with that is it's a big job for one thing, but but what's happened is the process is opaque. And in some cases, we're seeing it's taken two years to decide if a particular American is in fact a wrongful detention detainee or not. And therefore, then they don't get any of the help of the special envoy for hostage affairs. They're left to consular whose job is not to advocate for their release. So um, the wrongful detention process needs to be um, more transparent for families and more timely. Um, those are, but the other big thing, Mike, is we need much stronger deterrence to the practice of hostage taking. We need to be much, we need to look at it. We need to bring these people home, yes, but we also in, have a, need to have a strong path and deterrence so that um, Russia is hurt. When it, when it takes a set, one of our citizens, as opposed, because we certainly do not want to incentivize them taking our people. So we need much stronger deterrence. 
And that is why I think there's a need to really look at the whole issue in a bigger way, because we we don't want to. We want to deter the practice, period. We want Americans to be able to travel safely in the world. Has Paul Whelan been officially designated a wrongful detention? Definitely, yes. Paul has been a wrongful detainee within a few years of his captivity. It took a while to get that, but, but yes, he is. And still, you can see the difficulty in dealing with Russia. They make it as difficult as they can, Mike, as difficult as they can. Are there others uh, who we may know and have been publicized where designating them as officially wrongfully detained has been a problem or is still- Oh, many, many. Yeah. We have so many coming to us. We have a call tomorrow with a, with a and I, I can't- give names, but so many people so anxiously wanting this wrongful detention and believing it for their loved one, because then they'll get those services at the State Department for wrongful detainees. So it's the the slowness of that process, the lack of urgency and lack of transparency for families is a huge problem. But it can't always be granted, right? I mean, there are instances where where the State Department looks into this and says either laws were violated or I don't know what you would know about this, but what if the person has been working for U.S. intelligence? So true. So true, Mike. Um, well, I mean, if it was working for U.S. intelligence, that's a whole other category. Um, but we're talking about a real crime. Like, did our citizen create, do a crime in that country? Rob, steal, kill somebody. But then there's also the the uh, vaguer gray area of proportionality. So Brittany Griner did have yes, illegal drugs, yes. but- you know how I guess the question is, you know, it does seem unconscionable to detain her for that long over what she had. Yet there is a question of, okay, what would be an amount where the U.S. State Department couldn't say that it was uh, wrongful detention? But see, that's the problem, Mike. There is a lot of gray there. I mean, there is, there is, and um, so that is why I'm sure it takes the time to decide. But we've noticed that some cases aren't prioritized the way others are. You know, like Brittany Griner, because of her celebrity, and I'm very grateful, believe me, uh, I'm so glad she's home. But her, she was on the fast track. You know, she got her wrongful detention decided early on. And um, whereas some people like Paul Whelan now, it's going to be near five years. We have so many others um, in Iran, we have um, several, five, six years now. Simak Namazi is currently doing a hunger strike, seven years. You know, he's one of our, uh, he's a U.S. citizen, you know, there to visit family, you know, and um, we're seeing Imad Namazi, a similar situation, another upstanding U.S. citizen, just held because they can do it. And, and wanting to interfere with our policy while they do it. When someone is detained and a family comes to you, there's a calculation about, do we publicize this and how much publicity do we give? What are some of those considerations? What's the advice the foundation gives? You know, we always, we, we try to tell the families both sides. There's like, even with us, we publicize Jim's captivity because we're so desperate for some help but it may well have increased his value for ISIS and therefore used it for propaganda. So there's always that potential downside. But, but on the other hand, to be quiet, 
is nothing. I mean, we never, it has not been a priority for our country. Diane Foley is the founder and president of the Foley Foundation. Thank you so much, Diane. Such a pleasure, Mike. Thanks for your time. God bless you. And now the spiel. Christian Kirk is the wide receiver for the Jacksonville Jaguars, who play this weekend in Kansas City. Charlie Kirk is a talk show host and Republican activist who once called Donald Trump, quote, the most moral president on record. He has said a lot of other things, too. But did he say what we're about to tell you, he said. To honor a Venn diagram I know only about 4% of America must find itself in the middle of, but maybe 14% of the GIST audience... I want you to play Who Said It, Christian Kirk or Charlie Kirk, the game show you didn't know you needed. So statement one, who said it? Jacksonville Jaguar wide receiver Christian Kirk, flamethrowing talk show host Charlie Kirk. Statement, I'm a one percenter. We do something rare that not a lot of people can do. Who said it? Was that Charlie Kirk or Christian Kirk? I'm a one percenter, you're a one percenter, like successful people in this life, like we're all one percenters, like Mm -hmm. when you do something rare that not a lot of people can do, like. And that was Christian Kirk. Salary details, $37 million of his four-year salary is fully guaranteed. Yes, squarely in the one percent, he does put his body on the line and delivers the most popular entertainment in America. Charlie Kirk, by the way, Forbes estimates is worth 19 million. Those estimates have got to be low given his popularity as a top 10 podcast, a daily radio show. By my calculations, Charlie Kirk is actually slightly better paid than Christian Kirk. Okay, next, who said it, Christian Kirk or Charlie Kirk? We have to play offense. And which of the Kirks said that? Which Kirk? Charlie Kirk? Christian Kirk? Could be either one. Which way do you think it goes? We have to play offense, and that's how we'll save the Republic, the greatest country ever to exist in the history of the world. It was Charlie Kirk. Is the Republic the greatest country? Is the country the greatest Republic? Only the pan flutes underneath can clarify. All right, next, more of a sentiment than a statement. Just generally praise for Trevor Lawrence. Okay, more specifically, who has praise for the Jacksonville Jaguars quarterback for making an excellent point? Hmm. So Christian Kirk is on the receiving end of Trevor Lawrence's passes and scores points, but Charlie Kirk likes to remark on the excellent points of others. Let's hear who said it. Trevor Lawrence, who was it speaking of Trevor Lawrence? Trevor Lawrence here makes a great point that I even kind of missed. If you have a season, then there is an incentive for all the players to not get the Chinese coronavirus. Charlie Kirk said it. Also, it's not really a great point. Next, who said America needs college football? Christian Kirk played college football, Charlie Kirk want to opine on what America needs? Who said America needs college football? Who was the Kirk behind that pro-college football statement? Now, Representative Jim Jordan also came out in support of college football and saying, America needs college football. You're right, Jim Jordan. God bless you. That was Charlie Kirk again. You knew that when Jim Jordan was coming up, it wasn't going to be Christian. Well, let's close it out. 
couple more. Who said cornstarch? Charlie Kirk? Christian Kirk? Let's give a listen. Cornstarch. That was Christian Kirk. Context doesn't matter. And who compared their upcoming contest to the most important contest of all time? And so we ask, who said it once more? The answer? Well, here it is. President Trump is the bodyguard of Western civilization. How President Trump and this election is not just the most important election of our lifetime, but the most important election of all the combined lifetimes since 1860. That is a lot of lifetimes, cumulatively. That was Charlie Kirk. And this has been Christian Kirk versus Charlie Kirk. Who said it? Christian Kirk's Jaguars are eight and a half point underdogs against the Chiefs this Saturday. Charlie Kirk on today's show said, quote, I don't believe Black History Month is worth the kind of full month that it is at all. Thanks for playing. That's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, jeepru, and thanks for listening.